so that the servants on board the train would not know who these men were, because they were afraid if the servants had talked about it, word had leaked out in that fashion, then the purpose of the meeting could have been defeated. So absolute secrecy was essential all the way up and down the line. The private railroad car traveled for two nights and a day on a 1,000-mile journey to the south. And when they awoke the second morning, the car was on the siding at Brunswick, Georgia. There they took a ferry boat across the Inland Strait to Jekyll Island, then to the clubhouse. And for the next nine days, they sat around a table and they hammered out all of the important details of what eventually became the Federal Reserve System. When they were done, they went back to New York. And for quite a few years after that, they denied that such a meeting ever took place. It wasn't until after the Federal Reserve System was firmly established that only then did they begin to talk openly about their meeting and what they accomplished there. Several of them wrote books on it. One of them wrote a magazine article. And they gave interviews to newspaper reporters. And so now, many years later, it's possible for us to go back to the public record and discover in minute detail exactly what happened on Jekyll Island in 1910. Now, who were these seven men? The first one I've already mentioned, Senator Nelson Aldridge. He was the fellow that owned the private railroad car. He was the Republican whip in the Senate. He was chairman of the National Monetary Commission, which was that special committee of Congress created to make a recommendation for legislative reform, banking reform, they called it. They wanted to reform banking in America because the American people were very concerned over the concentration of financial power into the hands of a small group of banks and investment firms in New York on Wall Street. That is what they called the money trust. That was a popular phrase. In fact, quite a few politicians had been successfully elected to office on their campaign promise to break the grip of the money trust. And that was one of the primary purposes of the National Monetary Commission, of which Senator Aldridge was chairman. He was also a business associate of J.P. Morgan. He was the father-in-law of John D. Rockefeller, Jr., which means, of course, that eventually he became the grandfather of Nelson Rockefeller, our former vice president. Remember, his full name was Nelson Aldridge Rockefeller, so he derived his middle name from his famous grandfather. The second man at the meeting was Abraham Piat Andrew, Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. Later, he became a congressman, and throughout his career, he was very important in banking circles. The third man there was Frank Vanderlyn, president of the National City Bank of New York, the largest and most powerful of all the banks in America. Representing the financial interests of William Rockefeller and the international investment firm of Kuhn, Loeb and Company. Henry Davison was there. He was the senior partner of the J.P. Morgan Company. Charles Norton was there president of the First National Bank of New York, another one of the giants. Also, there was Benjamin Strong, head of J.P. Morgan's Bankers Trust Company. 
And incidentally, Benjamin Strong, three years later, when the Federal Reserve Act was finally passed, he became the first head of the Federal Reserve System. And finally, last but certainly not least, Paul Warburg was there, probably the most important man because of his knowledge of banking in Europe. Warburg was born in Germany, eventually became a naturalized American citizen. He was a partner in Kuhn Loban Company, but he was also a representative of the Rothschild banking dynasty in England and France. And throughout his whole banking career, he maintained close business liaison with his brother, Max Warburg, who was head of the Warburg Banking Consortium in Germany and the Netherlands. Paul Warburg was one of the wealthiest men in the world. But those are the seven men on Jekyll Island. And as incredible as it may seem, these men represented directly and indirectly approximately one-fourth of the wealth of the entire world in those days. And these are the men who sat around a table on Jekyll Island and created the Federal Reserve System. Does it arouse your curiosity? What's going on here? Now for the skeptics who are here tonight, and I hope there are plenty, because if there aren't, I feel like the minister talking to the choir. I know there are always plenty of skeptics in my audiences, and that makes me feel very good. For the skeptics, you're probably wondering, did it really happen that way? Surely Griffin is exaggerating to make a point. Well, yes, it really happened that way. And I'd like to illustrate that by quoting for you just one piece of evidence here. This was taken from an article that was written by Frank Vanderlip himself that appeared in the Saturday Evening Post on February 9, 1935. Remember, Vanderlip was one of those at the meeting. And this is what he said. I do not feel it is any exaggeration to speak of our secret expedition to Jekyll Island as the occasion of the actual conception of what eventually became the Federal Reserve System. We were told to leave our last names behind us. We were told further that we should avoid dining together on the night of our departure. We were instructed to come one at a time and as unobtrusively as possible to the railroad terminal on the New Jersey littoral of the Hudson, where Senator Aldridge's private car would be in readiness attached to the rear end of a train to the south. Once aboard the private car, we began to observe the taboo that had been fixed on last names. We addressed one another as Ben, Paul, Nelson, and Abe. Davison and I adopted even deeper disguises, abandoning our first names. On the theory that we were always right, he became Wilbur and I became Orville after those two aviation pioneers, the Wright brothers. The servants and train crew may have known the identities of one or two of us, but they did not know all. And it was the names of all printed together that would have made our mysterious journey significant in Washington, in Wall Street, even in London. Discovery we knew simply must not happen. But why? Why the secrecy? What's the big deal here? What's wrong with a group of bankers going to a private location and discussing banking or banking legislation? 
And the answer to that is provided by Vanderlift himself in the same article. He said, if it were to be exposed publicly that our particular group had got together and written a banking bill, that bill would have no chance whatever of passage by Congress. Why not? Because the purpose of the bill was to break the grip of the money trust. And ladies and gentlemen, it was written by the money trust. It's as simple as that. Had the public been aware of that fact, at the beginning, we would never have had a Federal Reserve system. That was like asking the fox to build the hen house and install the security system. Absolute secrecy was essential for that reason. Congress would never have gone for it. The public would never have gone for it. So there we're face to face with a very important fact about the Federal Reserve System that is not generally known today. It certainly wasn't known then. And that it was formed in secrecy because there was deception at work here. But there's more to it than that, much, much more. Analyze for a moment the composition of that group. Doesn't it seem strange to you that these men were all together? Here we had the Morgans, the Rockefellers, Coon Robin Company, the Rothschilds, the Warbirds, all sitting around the table here coming to an agreement. Anything strange about that mixture? Well, ladies and gentlemen, these were competitors. What's going on here? Competitors sitting around, coming to an agreement. These were the giants in the investment field, which prior to this period were beating their heads against each other, blood all over the battlefields, fighting for dominance in the financial markets of the world, not only in New York, but Paris and London, everywhere. And they're coming to an agreement of some kind. This is an extremely important fact that is generally overlooked because it happened precisely at that point in American history, which is sometimes described in our history books as the period of the dawning of the cartel. This was that point in American history when a major ideological transition was taking place in business. Big businesses which had grown to great power and size and prosperity through the process of free enterprise competition, which is what made this nation great and allowed us to surpass the old work. The first draft of the Federal Reserve Act was called the Aldridge Bill because it was sponsored by Senator Aldridge. And uh, Paul Warburg warned him against that. He said, Nelson, if you put your name on this bill, it's going to be voted down in Congress because you're so clearly identified with big business interests. And Warburg was right. Congress put thumbs down on it. The bill of the big bankers. Well, it was a minor setback. They took their bill. They scrambled the paragraphs around a little bit, took Aldridge's name off of it, and found a couple of Democrats to sponsor the bill. Now, this was different because everybody knew that the Republicans represented big business. But they also knew that the Democrats, on the other hand, represented the common man, you know, the working man, the fellow on the assembly line like Ted Kennedy. So they found a couple of millionaire Democrats to sponsor the bill. Carter Glass in the House, 
and Senator Robert Owen, who was himself a very successful banker, sponsored the bill, and now it was the Glass-Owen bill. Next, Aldridge and Vanderlip began to give speeches and interviews to newspaper reporters condemning the bill that they had written. They said, this bill will ruin the bank. It'll be terrible for the nation. And of course, by the time that got into the newspapers and the average person read that, they were saying, golly, the, the big bankers don't like this bill very much. It must be pretty good. You know, you have to give these fellows credit. They weren't stupid. They didn't get to be where they were by being country bumpkins. They understood math psychology. They understood politics. And they played their cards exceedingly well. Meanwhile, these same individuals were out of their own pockets financing so-called grassroots study clubs that were springing up all over the country, holding public meetings, printing and distributing pamphlets, extolling the virtues of the Federal Reserve Act. They gave huge amounts of money to some of our better-known universities in America, established new departments of economics, hand-picked their own people to be the professors to chair those departments. And then those professors began to give speeches and write scholarly essays about how wonderful the Federal Reserve System was. And then at the insistence of Paul Warburg, they added a few excellent provisions to the bill, provisions which seriously restricted the ability of the Federal Reserve System to create money out of nothing. And Warburg's associate said to him, Paul, what are you doing? We don't want that in our bill. And his reply was classic. He said, relax, fellas, don't you get it? Our object is to get the bill passed. We can fix it up later. It was because of those provisions that they won over the support at long last of William Jennings Bryan, who was the head of the populist movement. He had opposed this bill from the beginning. But when he saw those excellent provisions in there, he said, oh, well, I guess now I can support this bill. And with his collapse of opposition, the road was now clear. And everybody was for, almost everyone, except a few lone voices, was for the Federal Reserve. And indeed, they did fix it up later. Since the Federal Reserve bill was passed, it has been amended over a hundred times. And every one of those excellent provisions were long ago removed, and many more have been added, which greatly expanded the power and reach of the Federal Reserve System. And so with this professional, brilliant strategy and deception, it is no surprise that eventually the public and Congress was solidly for the Federal Reserve System. And the bill was passed on December 22nd, 1913, and the creature from Jekyll Island finally moved in to Washington, D.C. I'd like to focus for a moment on what are the objectives of the Federal Reserve System, because, you know, we're told that the purpose of the Fed is to stabilize the economy and to put an end to chaotic banking. One of the more popular textbooks used in our colleges and junior colleges today 
uh, textbook on economics written by Paul Samuelson. And here's what he says. He says the Federal Reserve sprang from the panic of 1907 with its...